God, I pray that you would use uh, your word this morning to shape us, uh, to learn what it means to live in obedience to you, to learn what it means to live uh, as your people in this world. So I pray that you send your spirit so that we would hear your word rightly and be able to uh, have the grace to respond. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, if you've ever spent some time with someone who has uh, recently fallen in love with someone else, you know that it can be kind of a, a nauseating sort of a deal, right? Like they're going on and on about how wonderful this other person is. They can't stop talking about how every little thing they do is so perfect and, and so cute and so nice. And you kind of want to sort of brush them back to reality a little bit. Uh, shortly after my wife and I um, started dating, she had a class that required her to go down to the Shedd Aquarium in downtown Chicago, which was great. It's a great aquarium. Uh, but she had also already agreed to help a friend of hers out at a, uh, as a chaperone at a junior high lock-in, uh, first and last time she ever did that. Uh, so she was frustrated because uh, she had signed up for two things on the same Saturday. She wasn't going to be able to uh, run back to campus, pack a lunch, eat food, or anything like that. Uh, and so it was pretty clear that the future for her, uh, if you've heard the term hangry, that would be uh, her future on that particular morning because she wasn't going to be able to eat anything. So I'm hearing this, and I'm hearing her frustration. I'm empathizing with this. So I decided to do one small thing to try to make the day a little bit better for her. I made her just a simple little uh, packed lunch, uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, maybe an apple, maybe a water, uh, whatever I had uh, lying around. Uh, but it turns out that uh, this was apparently just the right thing. So later on, she was talking to her mom on the phone, and she was just gushing about how I had saved the day for her. She said, Mom, you'll, you'll never guess what Gary did for me. He made me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and it was perfect. It was exactly what I needed. It was delicious. It, was, it saved the day. And the way that she told the story, I was this massive hero and you can imagine being her mom on the other end of the phone, just rolling her eyes and thinking, okay, my daughter is gushing over a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. What is going on here? But, but this is just how it is when we're falling in love, right? Every little thing that that person does is heightened. It seems like a magical kind of thing. You think this person is, is just unparalleled in their grace and beauty. No one else can compare to this person. And these are really fun emotions, right? It, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to be falling in love. But what we're going to look at today is how falling in love relates to an actual lifelong marriage and relationship. Uh, today we're in week four of our series in the book Song of Songs, True Love for a World of Cheap Imitations. So we're reading this kind of unique book in the Bible and and we're trying to understand what true love looks like. And, and through the poetry here, we get an idealized picture of what human love and intimacy can really look like. And then as we're looking at that picture, that beautiful picture, we're trying to understand how that kind of relationship is really possible in the real world. So the text that we're looking at today is actually the last two chapters of Song of Songs, chapter 7 and chapter 8. It's not the end of the series. We're, we're organizing it a little bit differently this time. Uh, so Song of Songs 7 and 8. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible. Uh, it's found on page 672 of the Pew Bibles if you want to follow along with us there. We're also going to look at Ephesians 5 in a little bit. I'll give you the, the page number for that when we get there. But we're going to start here in Song of Songs. We're going to look at this in three parts this morning. First, the experience of falling in love. And then what it means to actually love another person. And then finally, how we find the power to actually love. So let's start with falling in love. And this is the easy one for most of us, right? Falling in love is, is carrying these strong emotions. It's fun. The feelings are exuberant. So let's listen to our lovers here in Song of Songs for how they 
uh, share this process of, of being in love with us. Starting in chapter 7, verse 1 of Song of Songs. This is the man speaking. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter! Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. The woman responds, May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our doors every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. If only you were to me like a brother who was nursed at my mother's breasts, then if I found you outside, I would kiss you, and no one would despise me. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house, she who has taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of my pomegranates. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now, as we've seen throughout this book, there's a lot of ancient metaphors here and analogies that we would not use if we were writing love poetry today, but, but the sense is very clear that these are two people who have delight in this other person. And it's uh, maybe a little bit eye-opening how explicit the language is here. Maybe you're surprised to, to hear this kind of thing within the Bible. And yes, there is sexual desire here. We're not going to pretend that that's not what this is about. In fact, we'll talk more about that in a couple weeks. But what we're seeing here is that each one of these partners is looking at this person they love, and, and they can't help but talk about how great they are, how perfect they are. Everything they do, every part of their body is, is a magical kind of a thing. And notice again at the end of this short section, there's this warning. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. So again, there's this warning like we saw early on in the book, that there is a right time for love and intimacy. And in the scope of the Bible, that right time is inside the covenant of marriage. So the friends are, are hearing this poetry and they're seeing the, the woman and the man coming back up from the vineyards, from the countryside, and then they are going to ask a question. Chapter 8, verse 5. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? And the woman is going to respond, but she's going to direct her words to the beloved. Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. The friends respond again. 
We have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. The woman again, I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Haman. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. You who dwell in the gardens with friends and attendants, let me hear your voice. Come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. And there's a bit in the middle here where the friends are speaking of the, the wall and the door analogy, an, an analogy of, of chastity and, and promiscuity and, and what they will do to protect their sister. So if she is a wall, if she has a tendency toward chastity, they will adorn her with silver. And on the other hand, if she is a door, so more of a, a tendency toward promiscuity and openness, then, then they'll protect her and, and, and close her in. But look at this section here in verses 6 and 7, how, how powerfully it speaks of uh, the, the power of, of human love. It says, love is as strong as death, as unyielding as the grave. It's like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters can't quench it. Rivers can't sweep it away. Money is nothing compared to love. It's a profound, powerful statement of love. And this helps us understand why so many songs today are written about love, why so many people are on dating sites looking for that true love, why so many of us want to experience the kind of love that we see described here. And for those who have experienced this, you know it's a great thing. Falling in love is a wonderful thing. But what we discover is that the emotional high of falling in love changes over time. And what we do with the change of those feelings is immensely important. See, at the very beginning, it's, it's easy to be excited. Everything seems to be great. It's like if you get a new gym membership, and at the outset, you're so excited. I ran across this diary of a, of a man's first week with a personal trainer. Monday, started my day at 6 a.m. Tough to get out of bed, but it was well worth it. This is going to be a fantastic week. Tuesday. I drank a whole pot of coffee, but I finally made it out the door. My legs were a little wobbly on the treadmill, but I made the full mile. I feel great. It's a whole new life for me. Wednesday. The only way I can brush my teeth is by lying the toothbrush on the counter and moving my mouth back and forth over it. Driving was okay as long as I didn't try to steer or stop. I parked on top of a geo in the club parking lot. Thursday, my trainer was waiting for me with vampire-like teeth exposed as her thin, cruel lips were pulled back in a full snarl. While she was not looking, I ran and hid in the men's room. She sent Lars to find me, and then as punishment, put me on the rowing machine, which I sank. <laughs> Friday, I hate my personal trainer <laughs> more than any human being has ever hated any other human being in the history of the world. We can get very excited about things at the outset, but then we see that this is not all fun and games. This can be difficult. This can be challenging. This can be hard. So how do we make the beauty of true love last after that experience of falling in love, after those heightened emotions begin to change and become more normal human emotions? So we go from falling in love to actually loving this other person. 
Now, one of the things that we notice as we look at the poetry of Song of Songs is how other-oriented all of this is and how mutual it is. Each of them is not talking about themselves, but they are talking about this other person that they have come across and how wonderful that other person is. And so there's this great expression of delight in that other person and a desire to give oneself to that other. And that's the, the sense that has to be cultivated if we're going to actually love this other person, that, that other orientation and, and that other centrality has to be at the forefront if we're going to learn to love another person. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5 to see what this looks like. Go ahead and turn there. Ephesians 5, 21. It's found on page 1,159 in the Pew Bibles. This is a section of instructions of what it means to live as a Christian in different aspects of life that you find yourself in. So we're going to read the husbands and wives sections also uh, to, to children, to parents later on as well. So this is what it means to live as a Christian spouse. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So this is what it means to live uh, as a Christian wife, as a Christian husband. Wives are called, as part of their obedience to Jesus, to submit to their husbands. Jesus is the head of the church, and the husband is the head of the wife. Now, I realize that this is a very countercultural kind of way of talking, right? Uh, to some of us, this will sound very odd. To some of us, this will be uncomfortable and even off-putting. And after all, as followers of Jesus, we know that men and women are created equal before God. Both of us bear the image of God. Both of us are loved equally by God. Both of us are saved by Christ. And yet, nonetheless, the husband is given responsibility to lead in his family. So what that means for the marriage relationship is, is a shift in the dynamics it's no longer this fight for power and control. Instead, the woman is choosing to sacrifice for her family as part of her obedience to Jesus. So she makes the choice to submit to her husband's leadership and to show him respect. She will choose to serve her husband. And this is a big sacrifice. And husbands, too, for their part, as part of their obedience to Jesus is to love their wives sacrificially and to lay down their own desires for their wives. Jesus is the example of this, right? Jesus loved the church so much that he died on the cross willingly for the good of the church. And so the responsibility the husband takes to lead is not to rule, but to lead in service. 
See, the, the love that husbands are called to love with is a love that stops at nothing to get the good for the other person. And here, too, is a significant shift. It's not about ruling the family and, and always getting your own way. It's not about this being the man's will. This is about the man laying down his life for his family. And what it means for him to lead, to take responsibility for his family, is to put their needs first and to put what God wants for his family first. And this, too, is how he is to serve his family. This is a big sacrifice. But remember when we looked at the, the very beginning of this series, we looked at God's intent for what love and intimacy are all about. We looked at Genesis chapter 2 and this great picture of God uh, providing a man uh, with this wife. And at the end of chapter 2, we see that the man and the woman together, and they are united and they are one flesh. They're naked and they're unashamed. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of God's design for what this marriage relationship is to look like. But then we looked at what went wrong, the problem of this, and that's in Genesis 3. Humans rebelled against God's command, sin entered the world, and as a result of that, that, that beautiful one flesh relationship and that unity has been marred. And so as God pronounces the consequences of sin, he says this to the woman in, in Genesis 3.16, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So it's a disruption of that good that God created in marriage. But then we look at Ephesians 5, and we see that that disruption now is put back together. It's a transformation of that dynamic that came about as a result of sin. So no longer is this, this battle back and forth for power and control. And it also changes my mindset of what marriage is to be. Marriage is no longer about my wants, my desires, my needs. The focus for me in my marriage is not me. The focus is now on you, this other person. And so now it's not about finding my needs and my desires met. It's about working hard to meet the desires and the needs of that other person. It's about being called to serve sacrificially. So both husband and wife are called to a significant change. Each of them is called to sacrifice in their own way. And the husband is called to set the tone and to take responsibility for leading in service. And this is a huge mindset shift for most of us. For most of us, when we feel the passion of falling in love, begin to change and give way to the more normal emotions of human love, our actions tend to follow that. In the heightened emotion of falling in love, we would do anything for that other person. But as that kind of changes a little bit over time, it becomes less natural for us and more difficult to do more things for that other person. And this is precisely when we need to learn to actually love sacrificially, to actually serve this other person. See, we tend to think of love primarily in emotional terms. It is something I feel, and therefore out of my feelings come my actions. But we cannot allow our actions simply to follow from our feelings. They're tied together, but love is an active form. It's a, it's a verbal form. Love is something we choose to do out of a deep commitment. And so we choose to act in a loving way toward our spouse, even if we don't always feel those same feelings. See, the solution to falling out of love is to learn to serve your spouse sacrificially. And think about what happens if, if this image of a relationship in Ephesians 5 happens. If, if I put my own wants and desires in the background, if my primary focus is how I can love my wife and lay down my life and serve her and meet her needs, 
And if she's doing the same thing, putting her own wants and desires in the background, and at the forefront, putting serving me and, and meeting my needs, what's going to happen as a result of that? Well, both of us are going to have our needs met, but those needs aren't met then out of a, a, the pressure of a nagging relationship, but instead out of the outworking of the other person's sacrificial love for us. It's, it's a beautiful picture. Now, I was given a, a book by my in-laws uh, on my first Christmas uh, in the family. It's uh, called Sex Begins in the Kitchen. There's a real awkward picture of the author on the back cover. Um, I was given this on Christmas morning in front of... Um, my wife's brothers and sisters, so it was kind of an awkward moment uh, all together as a family. But the book's actually really good, and it's, it's making a similar point that, that all of this is tied together in a relationship. So a fulfilling sexual relationship is the outcome of the kind of mutual self-serving that Ephesians 5 is talking about. To use the analogy of the title, when you serve your spouse by helping out in the kitchen, it builds the kind of relationship where sexual self-giving also happens. See, the falling in love part, that's really easy. But it's the sacrificing of self, it's the serving that other person, loving them well, that is more challenging. Let's think in practical terms here for a minute. What we are called to do is to find ways of showing that other person love. And as we look at what, what human relationships are about, we realize that some people give love in particular ways and some people receive love in particular ways. If you've heard of that, the really famous book, The Five Love Languages, it's getting at that kind of a concept. So if we're really going to sacrificially love this other person, we have to learn what makes them feel loved and what it means to actually serve them. I can do lots of things that I think are loving, but if my wife doesn't see those as loving, if that's not how she wants to be served, then it's not going to work out. So I heard of a guy one time that, that got his wife a new rifle for Christmas. It's not really what she wanted. He was the one who wanted that, and so he used that as an opportunity to give her a gift that he actually wanted. That's the opposite of what we're talking about here, right? Sacrificially loving our spouse means becoming a student of them and of what uh, makes them feel loved and then serving them by doing those things. So I, I'm an acts of service guy. That's how I like to show love. I want to go around the house and get lots of stuff done, fix things, organize things, all that kind of thing. So all Saturday long, I can be running around the house doing lots of things and thinking, I am showing my wife love by doing these things. But here's the thing. My wife is a quality time love kind of person. And so if all day long I'm running around showing love and I'm thinking I'm serving my family, I'm serving my spouse, look at all the activity, all the energy I'm putting into this. But if I don't actually sit down and have a conversation with her, I'm not loving her well. I might be doing lots of things. The things I'm getting done might be good things that need to get done, but I'm not actually sacrificing my own agenda to love this other person. So we have to understand who our spouse is and then go out of our way to show them love in that way. I know that most days I can make my wife feel perfectly loved if I will just stop and give her a hug. My wife knows that most days she can make me feel perfectly loved if she will make cinnamon rolls for breakfast in the morning. It's the, it's the give and take, right? Now the danger here, the caution, is, is this can easily become a formula for trying to manipulate another person to get what you want. So you read Sex Begins in the Kitchen. You think, okay, well, I'm going to start doing the dishes every night and then maybe later on, but that's not how this works. That's not the mindset here. That's, that's our shifted or twisted thinking in our minds. This is about, no, I'm going to love this other person. I am called to lay down my desires, my wants, and I am going to serve them sacrificially, like Jesus love the church. 
Now, here's the problem. That's hard. This is very unnatural for us because we are by nature very self-centered, sinful people. Sacrificing is very difficult. Let's go back to Twitter. I love all this Twitter stuff. You guys are probably getting sick of it, but I like these Twitter things. So one person tweets this. Marriage is essentially two people taking turns pushing down the top of the kitchen garbage so they don't have to take it out. It's not leading in service. It's making sure the other person can serve you. Another person, I was about to do that chore that I see that you're starting now, marriage. We have this, this selfishness in, inside of us, and, and it happens for me even when I'm doing outwardly the right thing. So a few weeks ago, after I started preparing for this, this whole uh, series, my wife was upstairs putting our baby to bed, and I realized that, that the right thing for me to do would be to wash the dishes. Uh, I don't think it's putting it too strongly to say that my wife despises washing dishes. I don't mind dishes so much. Emptying the dishwasher is a totally different story, but for some reason, I don't really mind washing dishes. It feels like you're accomplishing something. You, you've done something, at the end, there's a difference. And so I don't mind dishes so much, but that particular night, I really didn't want to do them. I was feeling tired. What I wanted to do was just sit down on the couch and read a book or, or look on the internet or something to just... Uh, completely disengaged. That's what I wanted to do, and that's what I felt like I should be able to do. I'd worked hard that day, too. But I realized that she had made dinner, she had cleaned up lunch, she had put the kids to bed, so the right thing for me to do would be to do the dishes. So I've got to do them, right? I'm doing this sermon series. I'm going to tell people that they're going to have to serve their spouses. I've got to do this, or I've got no right to say this to anyone. So I do the dishes. I serve my wife. And in the whole time I'm doing dishes, I've got this inner dialogue of how I shouldn't have to be doing the dishes. And I'm sulking, and I'm complaining about it, and I'm whining about it, but I buckled down and I served my wife. I did the right thing. And then when she came down from putting Thea to bed, I made my silent sulking obvious enough that she could tell what a huge sacrifice I made for her by serving her and doing the dishes. I wanted her to feel bad that I had served her. Is that the kind of service that this is talking about? No, but our sinful hearts, our selfish hearts, serving is not natural for us. This is not an easy thing to do. Even when I'm doing supposedly the right thing, I am being selfish and self-righteous about it. Here's the reality. I can't keep that up over decades, a lifelong marriage, if the resources have to come only from my will and my resolve. It's not going to work. If this is going to last over a lifetime, I have to find more power to actually love my spouse. What's instructive about these charges to husbands and wives in Ephesians 5 is that they are tied specifically to Jesus. So when wives are called to submit, it's in relation to knowing Jesus. And indeed, Jesus is the one who is the ultimate example of what it means to submit sacrificially. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 2. He's calling the church to have the same attitude as Jesus, to serve one another, put others first. And then he talks about how great the example of Jesus is. This is Philippians 2.5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus is the perfect example of sacrificial submission. If we want to know what this looks like, we look to the cross. He gave up his own will, his own desires to live in obedience to the Father and to die on a cross in obedience to the Father. That's how much he was willing to give up of himself. That was his sacrifice for us. And so wives are to look to Jesus, to look to the cross. This is what it means to sacrifice. Husbands, too, are called to find in Jesus the example of what it means to live sacrificially. We saw this in Ephesians 5.25 already. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up is pointing again back to the cross. Jesus died for the church. That's what sacrificial love looks like. He loved the church so much that he gave his own life for us. So if we're ever going to understand what it means to have true love for another person, we find that example in what God has done for us in Jesus. This is how we discover what true love is. But here's the thing. It's not enough for us to simply see the example of Jesus. See, you and I can watch highlights of the best athletes in the world. We can watch highlights of the best basketball players and, and, and be incredibly inspired. I would love to be able to do what these athletes can do. But here's the thing. Being inspired is not the same thing as being empowered. It doesn't mean I can actually do those things as much as I can see that those are amazing things. So we learn what true love is by looking at the example of Jesus, but then we actually have to find the power to actually do it, to actually love sacrificially. And that's where this Ephesians 5 passage is really helpful, because before it gets into any of these instructions of what it means to sacrifice for the other, it's laying down a fundamental truth. It's a whole book about the gospel. It starts off by saying that when we were dead in our sins— God made us alive in Christ. That's the good news. That's the gospel. It means that something fundamentally has changed for us in our identity. We were dead before, and we have been made alive in Jesus. And then before these specific instructions is the overarching instruction that undergirds them all in Ephesians 5, 18. It's easy to miss that, but it says, be filled with the Spirit. And then being filled with the Spirit is how speaking to one another in songs, submitting to one another, that's how all of that plays out. But the, the root of that, what actually empowers us to be able to do that, is being filled with God's Spirit. And that's what's pointing us to the power that we need to actually be able to do that, to love another person sacrificially. We need God's Spirit to fill us. God's Spirit takes the truth of who Jesus is and then gets that truth deep into our hearts so that we actually believe it and live it out. The Spirit speaks the truth of the gospel into our hearts and transforms who we are. That's where the power to love another person sacrificially comes from. It comes from God ministering the good news of Jesus into our hearts. See, the gospel says that I am totally loved and accepted in Jesus. And I am totally loved and accepted in him, not because of my past performance and not because of my future performance, when I was at my very worst, that is when Jesus died for me. I was loved and accepted in him, 
At my worst moment, when I learned to depend on him, I became a loved and accepted son of God. And if I know that is true, if I know that I'm totally loved and accepted in him, then my love tank, so to speak, is filled. The Spirit has filled me with the power of God to know the gospel and to have that feeling of being totally loved and accepted in him. And that means that I don't have to look anywhere else for that feeling of love and acceptance. I don't have to look anywhere else for my meaning and my identity. The the biggest questions in my heart have already been answered by God himself. And from that standpoint, then, I am able to give freely, even if it means I'm giving more than I'm receiving. Now, at best, husband and wife are loving each other sacrificially. At best, this is a mutual self-sacrifice. And so the spouse becomes one of the means that God shows you his love and communicates that to you. But the fundamental truth is the same, whether that's happening as ideal or not. What we need more than anything else is Jesus. We need him to minister to our hearts by the power of their spirit so that we know we are loved and accepted by him. Now, I can try really hard to love my wife well. I can try day in and day out to sacrifice for her. I can put all of my energy and all of my efforts into this. But if I am doing this in my own power, instead of being filled by the Spirit, this is not going to be sustainable over the long term. It's like if I decided to get a sailboat and go sail Lake Michigan. I don't know anything about sailing, but I know something about paddling. I've seen that they've got these stand-up paddle boards and the paddles that go along, and these big, long paddles, and I think, okay, well, maybe I'm going to be able to propel that sailboat, if it's small enough, with that paddle. I'll be able to make some progress here. So what's going to happen? Well, I'm going to get that in Lake Michigan. I'm going to say, well, I'm going to go down to Grand Harbor today. I'm going to get my paddle. I'm going to go with all my might. And if I'm strong enough and I'm persistent enough and determined enough, and the weather is really calm and the lake is really flat and the current is with me, maybe I'll be able to make a little bit of progress heading south. But what happens if the wind starts to pick up or the current starts to work against me or the waves start to rise? There's no hope. I've got no chance of actually propelling that boat where I want it to go because that's not how it was designed. It wasn't made for that. A sailboat is designed to harness the power of wind in its sails to be able to propel that boat forward where you want it to go. So if I want it to actually move like it was designed for, I have to learn to set the sails right, to, to allow the wind to be what propels me forward, to, to drop the silly little paddle down and actually use that as it was meant to be used so the boat can actually go places. When we are called to sacrifice for another person, that is something beyond our natural capability of doing. If our only answer to this kind of passage is to say, try harder, try harder, try harder, we're going to fail. Maybe you're stronger than me. Maybe you're going to last for a little while. But this is ultimately not going to work. You are going to flounder sooner or later. The power to be able to love sacrificially another person like Jesus loved us comes from God's Spirit. And that's what we need to be able to love this other person. See, the bottom line here is that we need Jesus more than anything else. If you're struggling right now to love your spouse well, to put their needs before you, to love them sacrificially like the picture that we're given here, make it your daily prayer that God would fill you with his spirit. You can try harder. You can pray that God would help you to try harder. But what you need is God's spirit to fill you. You need the gospel deep in your hearts. That's where the power to actually love another person comes from. 
See, what we are called to as Christian husbands and Christian wives is hard work. And if we're ever going to be able to do this, we have to do it not in our own power, but in the, the supernatural power that God provides. And that's the good news this morning. That your marriage is not up to you being able to do better and do better and do better. The good news is that God has given us his spirit to be able to transform our hearts, to make us not the self-centered people that, that can't do this, but people who are more and more like Jesus so that we can actually serve another person. So this week, I want you to make it your prayer that God would fill you with his spirit so that you can actually serve another person. As we close the service today, we're going to do so with a song that's pointing us back to the source here. It's telling us to look to the Son, look to Jesus. It's like the, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, we, we fix our eyes on Jesus. It calls him the pioneer, the perfecter on our faith. We fix our eyes on Christ and we follow him in his power day in and day out. Please pray with me. God, I thank you that there is an answer to um, our imperfect attempts at loving one another. I pray that you would minister to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us, transform us by the power of the gospel so that we would learn to love our spouses well, to love others well, and to be able to give up our own selfish desires to be able to love others and to serve them. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.